0: All right, well, good morning, y'all. Good morning. And real quick, I just want to uh, publicly thank uh, Andy Esner for preaching last Sunday morning. He was a gift to us, and for those of you that have been asking, yes, I've already put the pressure, put the squeeze on Andy to get back in the pulpit soon, so brace yourself. It's coming. But, Andy, thank you again for serving us so well last Sunday. Grateful not only for your delivery, but for the preparation that went into it. So, thank you for the gift that you were to our church family. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to hang out in the first half of this chapter this morning. And Admittedly, we're going to start with something that's, well, it's going to sound a little familiar. And it raises some questions about why Is this in here what is going on? Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The question that's before us is, is this a rerun? (laughs) What happened here? Why are we seeing this twice? It was just two chapters ago, Mark chapter 6, that we saw Jesus feeding a large crowd of people. Is this the same event that's being spun again in a different way? Did Mark mess up along the way? Did the later editors of Scripture make a mistake and add something in twice? Well, we can definitely acknowledge that there are similarities between what we see in Mark chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000 and this episode here in Mark chapter 8. Here is a list of the similarities. First, it's a large crowd that had gathered to listen to Jesus. Secondly, the disciples doubted both times that the crowds could be fed. According to both accounts that we see, it's the same menu. It's bread and it's fish. Jesus left the crowds and went to another place on the Sea of Galilee. And in both accounts, afterwards, Jesus was confronted and interrogated by the Pharisees. And in both instances, Jesus was moved with compassion for the crowds. So you might say, well, obviously, these two stories are so incredibly similar, they're obviously the very same story. Well, that's not quite that obvious. There are some considerable differences that let us know that what happens between Mark 6 and Mark 8 are two distinct events. Some of them are small details, but enough to let us know that it's different. The first is that in Mark 8, the people were with Jesus for three days, whereas in Mark 6, it was only one day. In Mark 8, there was seven loaves, not five but there was fewer leftovers. Next, this is where we get to have fun with language. It's a different word for fish that's being used. In Mark 6, it's just more of a generic term for fish. Essentially, anything that has scales and swims in the water. In Mark 8, it's described as being little fish. And considering the region that Jesus was in, he was in a largely Gentile region, and that area was known for... The fishermen in that area were known for having caught, harvested, sold sardines. It's a different kind of fish. In Mark chapter 6, it records that 5,000 men were fed, and women and children are are implied in addition to that. Mark 8 records a total of 4,000 people, inclusive of women and children. So there's enough differences to let us know that these are, in fact, two separate events, which means on two separate occasions, Jesus performed an incredible miracle of feeding a ginormous crowd of folks. But the thing that really seals that these are two separate events is Jesus' own words about the events. It's towards the end of where we're going to go this morning. Mark 8, 19 and 20. Jesus said, When I broke the five loaves... For the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. Jesus clearly states, these were two separate events, two incredible manifestations of Jesus' power to meet the needs, two incredible manifestations of Jesus' compassion for those who were in need. Now, this whole episode of feeding the 4,000 is going to lead to a point. In both the accounts, in Mark chapter 6 and in Mark chapter 8, following the feeding of the great crowds, the Pharisees decide that they want to come have a chat with Jesus. We see the record in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Let's just put a pause there. There are two words that are being used that are translated for us in English. One is argue, one is test. This is not the Pharisee showing up wanting to have a friendly debate. This is not the Pharisees showing up trying to just gain information, trying to better understand. Hey, I just want to see where you're coming from. I just want to hear your perspective. No, this is the Pharisees that are coming to pick a fight. They want to harangue Jesus. They want to use this as a way to accuse him. They have not come with pure motives. They have not come with an agenda-free heart. Their point is we want to tempt this man to either sin against us in a very clear and obvious way or for him to disprove who he says that he is. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said why does this generation seek a sign truly I say to you no sign will be given to this generation and he left them got into the boat again and went to the other side the Pharisees came seeking a sign. The question that I would have for the Pharisees is exactly how many signs were you going to need to see? The Pharisees, for all of their supposed anger and frustration with Jesus, sure are spending a lot of time following Jesus wherever he goes. Which means that they are following this trail of miracle after miracle after miracle. How many more signs are you really going to need? How much more could Jesus do that would convince you? The Pharisees are telling on themselves. They have no interest in seeing a sign. They have no interest in believing in Jesus as Messiah. In fact, they're threatened by this truth. And rather than humble themselves and humble their hearts and to listen and to be obedient to what Jesus is saying, they've decided, no, that works against my agenda. That works against our plan. You are a confrontation of what we believe to be true. So the easiest thing for us to do, well, the second easiest, the easiest thing for them to do would be change their mind. But since they refused to do that, the easiest thing for them to do was to figure out how they could trap them so they could destroy them. How many times have we seen in Mark already where the Pharisees went out to discuss among themselves how they might destroy him? Notice what Jesus does. He does not really engage in the conversation. This is what makes Jesus better than you and me. We would have posted something on Facebook to prove how we are absolutely 100% correct. Jesus just said, I'm not going to engage in this conversation. I don't have to engage in this conversation. I already know your hearts. You're not curious. You're not humble. You're arrogant. You're prideful. You're just trying to destroy me. I don't have to participate in this. And the text records that Jesus sighed deeply. It's an understatement in English. The Greek carries a much heavier weight to it. The definition is listed there for you. To sigh or groan intensely as an indication of extreme pain, discomfort, or displeasure. This is Jesus at the point of exasperation. This is Jesus who has reached his limits, and that might be a difficult truth to hear. When we think of the fullness of God, we tend to think, and rightly, God is patient. He is long-suffering. He exhibits a great word that we never use today, forbearance. But there are limits to God's patience. We see this going all the way back to the beginning. And in Genesis 6, shortly before God announces his intent to flood the world, God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. There are limits to God's patience. You might be asking... So what's the limit? I think it's very kind of God that he doesn't tell us what those limits are. The intent of not telling us what the limits are is so that we would learn to be humble before him. It could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years, it could be decades. Consider the people of Israel. After they have left Egypt, on their way to the promised land, Geographically speaking, the hike should have taken them eh, maybe about a, a month or so to get from Egypt to the Promised Land, 40 years. Because the people of Israel kept rebelling against God, chasing other things, not relying on God, ignoring God, demanding their own way. So for 40 years, there's a limit to God's patience. I don't say this to frighten you. I say it to draw your attention to reality and to hopefully inspire with you maybe a greater sense of urgency in pursuing a committed relationship with Jesus. There's an old song, Standing on the Promises. The reality is that many in our churches in this nation can't sing that with integrity. Because far too many in our churches are not standing on the promises. They are merely sitting on the premises. There are limits to God's patience God is patient but it does have a limit and what we see happen with Jesus and the Pharisees to say you've reached the limit I'm, I'm done with this conversation now he didn't do it from a place of misplaced anger he didn't do it out of a place of trying to shame them it was just calling out the obvious you're not really here to engage with me. Your hearts are telling on you. The account that happens next, Mark turns his attention away from this interaction with the Pharisees and back to the disciples. And it's kind of a weird inclusion. Like, Mark, where are you going with this? I think by the end we'll see, oh, I see what Mark did there. Mark eight fourteen. Turning attention back to the disciples. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. Let's just pause there really quickly, okay? Mark 6, Jesus said, hey, there's all these people. Let's feed them. What are we going to do? Well, we don't have anything. You want us to go to town? He said, no, just feed them. Find what you have, okay? They find bread and fish. They've been hanging out with Jesus for another two chapters. Somehow nobody thought maybe we should have some bread on hand." How many baskets of leftovers? Nobody thought, you know, we should take this with us on the boat. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is Jesus warning the disciples about? What is the point of this? Again, it falls right on the heels in Mark's account of this interaction with the Pharisees. Jesus at the point of exasperation with the Pharisees. You can almost imagine as they're sailing back across the lake, Jesus perhaps with his eyes closed and just processing all of it, praying silently to God and sees this as an opportunity to teach his disciples, pleading with them, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And of Herod. So, what's this warning? When we see the word leaven used in the Testament, it is almost always a negative thing. And what is leaven? It's a little bit of yeast. You add it to dough, woo, dough rises. Hooray. But what it's saying is that a little bit of something added to something else can completely convert and change that other bigger something, even the smallest amount. For those of you that are bakers, how much yeast does it take to make a lump of dough rise? You don't need a cup of it. Some of you ought to try that later on. Uh, Just see what happens. Take pictures of it. Send it to me. I'd love to see what happens. But it doesn't require much. It's just a little bit. And it completely changes the lump itself. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is Paul describing as being leavened here? Malice, evil. He writes to the Galatians, there's an ongoing debate within the churches in Galatia about what exactly does it take to become a follower of Jesus? There's ongoing arguments about it. And Paul steps in to address the churches in Galatia. And he says in Galatians 5, starting verse 7, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Here's what was going on. The Galatian churches were requiring of new converts to Christianity who were coming out of an old culture. They were requiring, saying, hey, look, in order to become a Christian first, you have to be circumcised, and then you can become a Christian. Who hindered you from obeying the word? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What's Paul talking about here? He's warning the Galatian churches of practicing a false doctrine. So let's put this all together. What is Jesus warning about? He has encouraged them, beware of evil, beware of malice, beware of hypocrisy, beware of false doctrine. So when Jesus is looking at his disciples, have just had this interaction with the Pharisees that caused him to groan, over their stubbornness of hearts. He's pleading with his disciples, please don't be like them. Be on the lookout for this stuff within your heart. It will destroy you. The disciples, hearing this, respond this way. And they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. Now this is from the ESV. I don't really like the way the ESV translated this one verse because it kind of misses the point. And since many of you are using either the NIV or the New King James, I'm going to give you their translations of it because I think it communicates the point a little bit better. They reason among themselves it is because we have no bread. This is called Adventures and Missing the Point. The disciples are in the boat with Jesus. Jesus please, them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Oh, it's because we forgot the bread. No, it's not even close to what's going on here. What is wrong with you people? Remember, we have to be careful with the disciples because we're just like them. We don't get it. Jesus picks up on the fact that you guys have utterly missed the point of this and addresses them starting in verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus kindly redirects their thinking. This isn't about bread, fellows. Now, I'm sure in the back of his mind is going, But really, you should have brought the bread. Like, how hard is this? Bring the bread. But it's not about bread. It is about the condition of hearts and the capacity of eyes and ears. Do you not yet understand? As I look at this text, I see four things that we're being asked to understand. Do you not yet understand that Jesus can meet all of your needs? Here the disciples were, just two chapters after Jesus fed 5,000 people, Plus, and they're wondering again, hey, Jesus, how are we going to feed this huge crowd? What are we going to do here? Do you have a plan? Do you have an idea? Do you have any guesses? Jesus can meet all of your needs. I wonder at times when we find ourselves in a place of need, if our first strategy is to say, Jesus, here is my need. I think our temptation, and I understand it because I live it, is to figure out what can I do to make this situation better? Whether it's physical ailments, financial concerns, spiritual matters, emotional health, I'm very tempted to figure out what can I do to make this situation better? And I have to confess that my default position is not always to say, gee, how can you make this situation better? And I'm confronted with, do I really believe that Jesus can meet all of my needs? Certainly intellectually I say yes, but oftentimes in practice it doesn't come out. Do you not yet understand Jesus can meet all of your needs? We encourage you on the edge of beg you to write down your prayer requests. Every Monday morning, our staff gets together and we pray through the prayer requests that come in on Sunday morning. And unless that prayer request is marked as confidential, we then send that out by email each week so the whole church family can pray for it. Now, I'm going to say, this, I'm not mad, I'm not shaming, I'm just surprised at the number of times that there's weeks that go by, and there's no prayer request. So I can interpret that one of two ways. Either your lives are awesome, and you have no crises whatsoever, for which I would be very grateful, or you're not being honest. Not in a deceptive way, it's just invite us in. I know it can be threatening at times to so let people in, and for them to see that perhaps you've got unpleasant circumstances or experiencing some kind of weakness. I understand there's a vulnerability to that, and I get that. But please know, uh, the things that are prayed for are prayed for. They're not talked about. There's a huge difference. So we invite you to let us pray for you. And in the seat back in front of you, there's a communication card. Jot down your prayer request. You want to leave it anonymous? Fine. You want to make it confidential? Fine. I don't care but let us pray for you. Secondly, do you not understand that what you perceive to be the problem may not be the problem at all? With the disciples, they thought, oh, the problems, we forgot bread. Oh, man, dang it. Sorry. We'll do better next time. Was the bread the problem? Not even close. What you perceive to be the problem may not be the problem at all. Many of you know that um, one of my joys in serving here at this church is uh, being able to, to offer counseling. And it happens a lot where somebody schedules an appointment with me and with a specific topic in mind that they would like to talk about. And by the end of the conversation, we haven't even touched that particular topic because something else got uncovered. Usually the thing that brings somebody into my office to seek counsel isn't really the issue. It's almost always something else. This happens with me when I go to see my counselor. I go in, I drive there, and in my head, I've got it all charted out. I know exactly what I'm going to say to this dude today. We're going to talk about this, and we're going to talk about this, and we're going to talk about this. And I go in, and I sit down on his couch. I'm looking across from him, and my mouth starts going. And by the end of our time together, we have talked about everything but the list that I had come up with. Without fail, it's happened virtually every single time that I've gone to see my counselor. What you perceive to be the problem may not be the problem at all. It may be something else that's further below the surface. So I would ask you to marry that truth to the first one, that Jesus can meet all of your needs. The problem that you think is the problem may not be the problem. Ask Jesus to meet that deeper problem. Number three, do you not yet understand that Jesus' desire is to open eyes ears, and hearts to his truth. Jesus performed incredible miracles on his earthly ministry, during his earthly ministry. We have a record of them in these four Gospels. Those were only ones they were able to write down. I suspect there are umpteen million more, that's a very technical term, umpteen million more miracles that he performed that they just didn't have time to record or they got you know, finger cramps. But that's not why he came. He didn't come to perform miracles. He did it, but that's not his objective. His objective was to come and to rescue sinners. His objective was to present himself as being the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one gets to the Father except through him. So if you're wondering,
1: how come I haven't
0: seen A miracle in my life? I haven't seen something cool like that. That very well may be true. For most of us, it's normative to not see a miracle. And if Jesus' exclusive responsibility here on earth was to perform miracles, I can understand why you're disappointed. But if Jesus came to do something more and better than doing miracles, then maybe that should adjust your thinking if Jesus came to rescue sinners, that's what you need to key in on. And that he has offered himself on the cross to die for our sins, to take the punishment that we deserve, so we could be ransomed from the clutches of hell. And do you not yet understand that Jesus continues to hold out hope. It's written there in verse 21. It's been repeated on four different slides now. Do you not yet understand? It's a fascinating contrast between how Jesus interacts with his disciples and how he interacts with the Pharisees. The Pharisees like, okay, I'm done. But to his disciples, numbskulls though they were, do not Yet. Yet. It's not in the translation that I read, but in other translations, verse 17, where it says, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? In other translations, they interject the word still. Are your hearts still hardened? These are really key little words. Yet. Still. It's Jesus holding out hope. That life change can happen. It's Jesus holding out hope that heart can be softened. It's Jesus holding out hope that minds can eventually grasp even the most basic essential truths. Now, I'm going to ruin the story for you. After Jesus ascends to heaven, who are the people that are then used by God in an incredible way to advance the cause of the gospel? Eleven of these twelve jugheads. This is how the church explodes. Peter, who's constantly putting his foot in his mouth in the Gospels, is now standing up in front of councils and in front of people declaring boldly the Gospel of Jesus Christ with crisp clarity and unwavering devotion. Somebody let me know if I should be concerned with that. Thank you. Wow. (laughs) Lord, help me figure out how to turn that into an illustration. There is an Amber Alert on your soul. Come on. And Jesus holds out hope. There is that warning that your soul can easily be swayed and lead you down a difficult, dark path. There's always a possibility of hope. But we have to balance that. Again, there's a limit to God's patience. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus... I want to plead with you, with every fiber of my being. You know, you know, you can give me all your arguments, all your reasons, but deep down in a place of your heart that you won't say out loud, you know this is true. Give up. Just give up. And find comfort in Jesus' good grace and his love for sinners that he came to rescue them. If you are already a follower of Christ, I've got two tasks for you. One, rehearse these truths. Remind yourself of what God rescued you from. Again, if, if we're seasoned followers of Jesus, it's very easy for us to take this very casually. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Think about what that means. And renew your devotion. Secondly, you have people in your life, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, fellow students that desperately need to know that there's hope. We've been watching some silliness in the world around us. The world has no hope. We cannot remain silent about the hope that we have. There's some people that need to know that Jesus cares for their burdens and that Jesus will meet them where they're at that will nurture them and comfort them and care for them and shepherd them. There's people that need to know that their lives can be different. So if you're already a follower of Jesus, remind yourself and then go tell somebody. Do you not yet understand that Jesus continues to hold out hope? May we respond to that hope. May we be instruments of delivering it to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness and the truth of your word and the encouragement that comes. Lord, I do pray that we are wary of the leaven that could show up in our lives. Help us to be wary of evil and malice and hypocrisy and false doctrine. Father, for followers of Jesus here, I pray that they would cooperate with you as you make them more and more into the image of your son. I pray that they would embrace truth with their eyes, their ears, and most importantly, with their hearts. That you would use the individuals of this church family and this church family corporately to influence many with and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the good news that Jesus came to rescue sinners. Use us to be your instruments of grace and truth, mercy and hope. And Father, for those who are hearing this, that have not yet trusted you, I pray with the seriousness and the tenderness of a good father, you would arrest their hearts. They would be drawn to you, to your promise, to your good offer of securing for them forever forgiveness of sins and assurance of eternity with you in heaven and a transformed life here on earth. I pray they would give up the fight. And embrace your Son as their Savior. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.